Many of us have been the beneficiaries of the COVID-19 vaccine or booster shot based on mRNA technology. It's the platform of choice for the two biggest makers of COVID vaccines, Pfizer and its German partner, BioNTech, and Moderna. The vaccine's pathway for approval was the fastest in history and led to life-saving results at 90 to 95% efficacy. Today, I'm speaking with Christine Heenan, Senior Partner and Chief Communications Officer at Flagship Pioneering, the Life Sciences Incubator, which actually incubated Moderna a decade ago. We'll speak about how the Moderna experience influenced Flagship's approach to working with biotechs, her thoughts on the future of biomedical innovation, and, drawing on her communications and policy background, get her take on the recent criticism of the CDC's COVID-19 messaging. Okay, we're back and we're speaking with Christine Heenan of Flagship Pioneering. Among her career accomplishments, she served as a speechwriter and senior policy analyst in the Clinton White House, with a primary focus on healthcare policy and women's issues, was vice president of public affairs and communications for Harvard University, and has taught communications and or communications policy at Harvard and Brown Universities. Christine, how are you doing? I'm well, I'm well, it's nice to be here. Great to have you. Okay, so um, I know you uh, caught the, the J.P. Morgan conference last week. We're actually taping this uh, the, the Tuesday uh, after the, the four-day J.P. Morgan conference, which, of course, was virtual for the second uh, uh, time. And Flagship had a number of companies present there, right? We did. We had, I think, 10 total company presentations over the course of the week, and we at Flagship organized a number of other. It's just a, it's just a week in which the whole sector is really focused on big breakthroughs in biotech directions for the industry. So we put out a number of essays and then my boss, Nubar Fay, and the founder of Flagship, also the co-founder and chairman of Moderna, put out his first ever annual letter, just um, detailing some of the big trends in biotech and how to make the most of those opportunities. Uh, so, so we'll talk about you know some of, some of those opportunities as well as we go further here. But um, let's just kind of get into your background for a sec. Um, you joined uh, Flagship on a, in October 2020, kind of ex- extending your career in, in advocacy, public policy, and communications. Why did you decide to make the move to uh, a life sciences incubator? incubator? I, I have to say it is it is not a probable move. If you charted my career, I was mostly government philanthropy and universities, always in the public policy, strategy, communications, public affairs space, but really the third sector and the public sector. Um, never worked for a publicly traded company, never worked for in the field of biotech, although healthcare was a focus of mine, both as a consultant and in when I worked in the White House. Um, it was really a combination of a moment, and that being the moment of us, uh, you know, being in the early grips of COVID-19 and and being drawn to the opportunity to, to work for what I saw as one of the innovators and one of the helpers in that space. And then secondly, um, the opportunity to work for a boss and a team and a culture that I just knew I'd learn from. I, when I worked at Harvard, one of my colleagues was the dean of the Kennedy School, David Elwood. And at the time I was making a move to go with, to work with the Gates Foundation after being at Harvard for eight years. And, you know, it involves a a different industry, a different geography. And he gave me the advice that once a decade, you should do something professionally that scares the hell out of you. So I figured flagship was my my scare the hell out of me jump in third quarter of 2020. But I'm really glad I did. What scares you the most about the job now that you've been on it for a year and a half or so? What scares me now is different than what scared me at first. What scared me at first was just the the number of Everests in terms of learning curve to climb at once, you know, learning some basic level science to understand 
enough about the potential of the companies being built at flagship, understanding the dictates of companies that are funded through a series of investor rounds, eventually IPO, and then are, um, you know, in the public markets after that. There was so much new learning that that was scary at the beginning, and in some ways still still presents challenges. I would say now, as flagship is growing so fast, and the number of companies in our portfolio continues to grow, I just worry about staying on top of as much as possible, as well as possible. So that that would be, I would say, what keeps me up now. Um, am I aware of what's happening with this company or that company? But I have a really strong team and I'm good at delegating. So I, I feel like I have a lot of people on my team who are helping with those challenges. And, and also, you know, I just think it's a company that is pioneering is in its name for a reason. You know, it's really about charting new ground, settling unsettled territory. And I feel like it's my team's job to challenge ourselves every day to say, are we doing that in our domain? Are the, is the approach we're taking to communicating at JPM, for example, pioneering in its nature? Are we communicating in ways that are totally new for the industry? So just make just challenging ourselves to be as pioneering as the science that we we're responsible for getting attention around. Sure, sure. I know you teach communications uh, and policy, uh, so I wanted to ask you, many have criticized the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention over confusion in the administration's COVID-19 messaging, uh, as well as preparedness when it came to tests. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no secret why. Uh, months of convoluted guidance, as well as waiting months to make booster shots available to all American adults, which would have proven especially important against Omicron. I wanted to get your take on the factors behind what some are calling a communications crisis. Any advice for how government health agencies can regain the public trust? Well, let me start by saying I hope they can, because I think loss of trust in institutions is what makes us societally particularly vulnerable to misinformation to, you know, I heard from a guy in front of me in line at the deli being viewed with the same weight as I heard from the CDC. That's a really dangerous place to be in. And we need to trust our institutions and they in turn need to earn and re-earn our trust. So, and communications is a huge, huge part of that. I think many institutions, companies, governments learn the hard way about how much easier it is to lose trust than it is to regain it. And communications is central to that. So first of all, I would say, compared to when I was in government, for example, 20 years ago, in some ways easier than ever to communicate as a government agency because you have so many channels for communication, so many uh, ways to reach people directly. It's also harder than ever because of the number of voices giving counter information, interpreting your information in ways that aren't quite correct, and that and being vigilant against that is, is challenging. I would say, and then I, another challenge that CDC and other agencies has faced is this is a virus that behaves in ways that are not with precedent and not what most viruses do. And so there's some guidance that continues to evolve because our understanding of the virus continues to evolve. But there are other areas where people can legitimately say, you know, the CDC said we didn't need masks, turned out we need masks. They said you couldn't get infected after you had a vaccine, turns out you could. You know, some of that, you can see where that distrust comes from. The advice I would give to the CDC is the advice I would give to any client or did give to any client when I worked in crisis communications. The importance of consistent communications, clear communications, and concise communications. You really want to be clear, consistent, and concise. And I don't think we can really hold the CDC to that bar 
in, in their communications recently. And when you're going to make a change, a really clear explication of the from and the to. Our original guidance was 10 days and here's why. We've now learned this, which is why we're changing our guidance. We're changing it from 10 days to five days and here's why. Questions, go here for more, you know, that sort of thing. I think, I think consistency too, early in the pandemic when there were daily briefings, you could sort of, you knew when you could turn in, tune in to hear the latest. Um, that that's real consistency is really important. Where to go? Just the idea that at 9 a.m. every day, a certain government website's going to update the latest in, you know, reinforcing guidance, case counts, state-by-state -state surveys, that sort of thing, gives people a place to go back to and makes you a trusted center of gravity for information. I think that's another opportunity that they could take advantage of. Sure. And um you know, that, that makes all the sense in the world. And uh, it's, it was interesting to read uh, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director's interview in the Wall Street Journal the other day, where she kind of acknowledged that um, yeah. she, she needs to be clearer about that uncertainty, really, in the future. Uh, so so your, your words are, are really uh, on, on point there. But can I just pick up on that for sure. a second? Uh, you know, the biggest, the biggest conflict in any crisis communications is the conflict between what I call first and facts. The first information in an unfolding crisis is almost always wrong or at least incomplete. And yet we live in a world where if I wanted to know, you know, who's been nominated for the Golden Globes for best, my phone will tell me right now. And so we're all used to, if the information is available, it should be available to me in real time. So the demand for real-time information is like it's never been in history. And the fact that absent you filling the void with information, others will fill it for you. And then you're having to backtrack or explain or explain why what you've already heard might be wrong. When I worked in the White House and something was unfolding, we knew what we had till the evening news to get the story facts down, get everything straight. We had till the next morning's paper. That's just not the world we live in now. When I was at Harvard in my first year, there was a shooting outside one of the dorms at Harvard. And while we scrambled inside Massachusetts Hall to figure out who'd been shot, who was the shooter, was the person alive, all the circumstances, were people in danger? You know, Twitter, then, then you know, a year old, was all full of information. Shots heard here. This is what I saw. And we were really, really slow to catch up. And I learned a lot through mistakes made during communicating in that crisis about the need to feed real-time information, even if, to your point, what you're saying is what you don't yet know. And I think that that's perfectly fine. People want to be leveled with. Uh, they want answers if you have them. But if you don't have them, they'd rather you level with them than, than, than make it up or take a guess. So saying, here's what we don't yet know, here's what we do know, is the way to build trust with your audience. Sure. In, in some sense, I see parallels between the communication side of things and, and the journalism side of things, which yeah. is a famous saying that, you know, a news is the first draft of history. It's not always going to be uh, accurate or proven accurate down the road, but you're honest about what you know and you and you back up, you stand up your 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 story as, as you as you know it as it unfolds. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but um, you, you have you have to be transparent, as, as you say. You know, you, you've had to deal with, you know, some, some communications challenges since coming aboard flagship, such as the hiring of Stephen Hahn, former FDA commissioner during the Trump administration, who approved the Moderna vaccine. Given flagship's relationship with Moderna, having launched the biotech a decade ago, as we said, and remaining an investor, the media scrutinized his hiring, saying it undermines trust in federal decisions. Can you talk about how you handled that scrutiny? 
Sure. Yeah, you know, I would say that that largely um, the hiring of Dr. Han was considered a real boon for flagship just because of the expertise he brought in, not only his previous uh, expertise as the administrator of the FDA, but also long before that as a lead administrator and, and oncology researcher at MD Anderson. He's just someone who has a long history of advocacy for cancer patients and pushing the envelope on cancer care. But, you know, I, we do live in a time of distrust and cynicism, as we were discussing. So concerns of was there some kind of quid pro quo or is there some kind of involvement here? You know, the ability to be straightforward, matter of fact, that that flagship, while it has a founding relationship and ongoing relationship with Moderna, his work was not in that area, that he was, in fact, prohibited by federal rules from, from involvement with Moderna at all and to talk about the areas where he would be working. And he's been a huge asset to flagship and continues to be. He's now the CEO partner of one of our companies, Harbinger Health, and we are uh, really excited about what he's working on. So same rules, being clear, being straightforward. This is an area where he was someone of so much interest um, to the media that his joining flagship was actually, reporters had that information before we were ready to announce it. So it's a great example of the importance of being flexible. We had to move up our announcement by two days and and rather than have a news story that didn't have any of our context in it, we just we just accelerated our announcement and put our news out the night that we knew it was breaking in a, a national newspaper. And well, speaking of Dr. Hahn's involvement in Harbinger Health, I wanted to ask you, what are some of flagships, you know, uh, other big investment areas co- or companies themselves that, that you're most excited about? And where are you looking for biomedical innovation in the years ahead? So this is a part that is of my job that is just so fun. I think one of the one of the um, sentences spoken by my boss when I was looking at coming here was that flagship is in the business of taking the fiction out of science fiction, taking the the sense of you know the impossible into the realm of the possible in in biomedicine, and it's exactly what you know we get to front row seat on every day here at flagship. So you mentioned Harbinger Health; it's a really interesting company that, with a small draw of blood, uh, is able to detect. Uh, pre-cancer activity in someone's genes, as well as the tissue of origin. It's an example of an area that is an area of increasing importance and investment at flagship that we call preemptive medicine. The idea of, of delaying, detecting and delaying the onset of disease, in some cases, deterring it entirely by intervening well in advance of a disease taking hold. So Harbinger is in that area. We have a number of other companies in that area. And it will require some changes in how medicine is reimbursed, um, how drugs are approved in terms of biomarkers and that that sort of thing, as opposed to demonstration of effect on disease. If what we're looking to do is prevent disease, right, you can't regulate that in the same way of a drug that has an impact on disease. So this is a a growing but important area for us, preemptive health, preemptive health sciences, and their products, preemptive medicines. In addition, um, the microbiome is a really fascinating new pathway for um, new medicines, the, basically the bacteria and organisms in your gut that have evolved alongside humans over millennia and have really important bodily functions that we're beginning to learn about, some that hasten the onset of disease, some that prevent disease. And understanding and harnessing organisms in the microbiome is the focus of a number of our companies, Senda, Ceres, a number of others. And that's an area I think that will, will yield lots of promise in the decade ahead. Um, I would also, I'm really very excited by our uh, ag tech companies. People think life science and they think human health primarily, but soil health, 
uh, plant health. These are living organisms that we can better understand and, um, and better treat as well. So healthy soil and healthy plants allow us to rely less on overwatering, on pesticides, on a number of things that hurt the climate. And working with farmers around carbon capture is a huge strategy for mitigating climate change. And these are areas, a number of our companies, Indigo, uh, Inari, Envio, SIBO are working on. And I think as more and more of uh, people around the planet, companies around the planet focus on the need to be innovative in our in addressing climate change, I think we'll see greater investment in these areas and greater attention to solutions that are um, that do that have to do with plant health that have to do with carbon capture. Okay, thanks for that rundown there. You you mentioned uh, you know the the challenges inherent in incubating uh, life science firms, whether they be on the biotech side or the ag tech side. You know, one one of the Responsibility. I was, uh, excuse me. One of the responsibilities I would imagine for a firm like yours is to help companies like these to prepare for for making their entrance onto the public markets, which um, they have to get a lot of due diligence in order, and they have to have a lot of their facts straight, obviously, and their evidence, and, and and oftentimes showing proof of revenue and other things. But what are some of the biggest challenges that you you feel life sciences? firms, if we could kind of focus on that side, uh, the biotech side from, you know, face early on. What's what's your advice for entrepreneurs? Well, first of all, I think just in a crowded space where new companies are are launched all the time, what is is your differentiating proposition? What is your differentiating value? Why would this company stand up, you know, head and shoulders above all these other companies being brought to market? That's a really important thing. And that, that, that weaves its way through everything from narrative positioning to visual identity and branding to how you name a company, you know, right down to um, your, the, the navigability of your website or your NASDAQ ticker. So that those are areas, I think getting the story straight for a company and helping them um, tell that story to investors in the first instance, potential employees. I think one of the things that's different about biotech and maybe it's happening in a lot of industries, certainly we're seeing reports of that, but in the war for talent in biotech as in an exploding field, the ability to reach people and explain to them why they should come work here as opposed to where they are now or someone else is courting them, it's right up there with communicating with investors, communicating with potential employees and giving them a value proposition that makes them want to then vote with their feet and come work for you is critically important. We spend a lot of time on that at Flagship and we spend a lot of time on that for our companies. So I would say, back to your question about advice, I would say getting your story down straight as to what is it, what is the problem your company's innovation or product will solve? What does that mean for the world? And what would it look like in a sort of mission sense, but in an everyday sense to either invest in or come work at your company? Those are really important things to communicate well and clearly from the outset. It's interesting also to hear you talk about some of the early marketing decisions that you face, you know, with branding and logo and company name, ticker symbol, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, why aren't there more women entrepreneurs? You tell me. This is a problem we need to, all of us, men and women, focus on and solve because there are not enough women entrepreneurs. There aren't enough women in biotech. There aren't enough women in finance. And I think, so I think, what, what are some of the reasons? One, I am of a generation that I think we've seen evidence that we're steered away from math and science and toward English and history and arts 
based on gender bias. I, I, you know, have learned later in life that I actually have a facility for math, but, but was conditioned to think otherwise for a very long time. And so there's just the number of people who studied engineering, biology, chemistry in my generation, I'm in my early fifties, it's just fewer than those who studied English or history or communications or, um, you know, nursing or, or education or a million other fields that was more typical for, for pathways, career, career pathways for women. So that's number one. We need to equalize the number of women studying medicine, science, and, and make it clear that these are important career pathways for women as well as men. That is beginning to correct itself at the educational level, but it will take a while before that cycles through into the professional sectors. Secondly, finance is, the, is how entrepreneurs capitalize their ideas and bring them to market. And finance is a fairly male-heavy industry as well. And so the ability as an entrepreneur to have friends, colleagues, former business partners, classmates that you can call on to help capitalize your idea is also disadvantaging to women, um, particularly women. You know, in, it's, that's less true in, in fields where women have been more prominent, but in fields like science and technology where they've been less present, it's an, it's an added barrier. So I think there's, but the women who are in the field um, are amazing and really care about this issue and want to see more women. So I think we at Flagship, a number of our companies are really working to see what we can do to attract more women through the pipeline up into the C-suite and to have women entrepreneurs have the same access to capital and ideas and talent and financing as male entrepreneurs. Do you make that a requirement for your, you know, um, basket of companies or, you know, to, to work with companies that they have to have women leadership? We're, we're looking, you know, it's industry-wide and actually, uh, you know, NASDAQ is looking at this. Companies that do IPOs are looking at this. There are uh, ways to incent uh, diversity at the board level or at the C-suite level. Then there are ways to require it. And so we, we are looking at all those things for ways to, to diversify both our boards and our, our um, leadership at our companies. One last question, Christina, and I'll let you go. You know, one of your new projects I read about is pandemic preparedness. And if nearly two years of a global pandemic doesn't underscore the need yeah. for that, I don't know what will, but can you talk about your uh, or flagship's involvement there? I can. I mean, Nubar Afayan, my boss, just put out his first ever annual letter this past week. And at the end of the letter, it was so captivating to me. He talked about how after a major crisis like World War II, we saw the birth of organizations like the UN. After 9-11, we saw a major reorganization of federal agencies that look at domestic and international terrorism. After going through this sort of cataclysm of COVID-19, what are going to be the major societal reorganizations, the new structures that emerge that will allow us to never be in the position we've been in for the last two years plus now ever again? And certainly the ability to detect viruses and their variants and prepare well in advance of those viruses becoming pandemics is top of that list. We have a number of companies working in that area. You mentioned mRNA at the, at the top of our conversation. The, the pathway of, of approval for those vaccines was the fastest in history and, and to life-saving result. And when you talk about vaccines that are 94, 95% efficacious, there's a question of whether we're gonna ever content ourselves as a society with a flu vaccine that's 50% effective or a vaccine that's 30% effective. So marrying the emerging technologies of programmable medicines that allow much higher certainty of, of effectiveness and safety 
with an understanding of emerging pathogens is going to be an important area of investment. And as you say, shame on us if that doesn't become a priority because we've learned so much over these last three years. The question is, will we put it to use to protect us going forward? Mm-hmm. And and I lied, I lied, Christine. I wanted to see one other thing. You, okay. you got me thinking. You know, being the company that that did incubate Moderna a decade ago, and now, as you say, you know, witnessing how it was part of you know the fastest approval for a vaccine in, in history, and and indeed to life saving results. How else has that kind of changed flag flagships uh, investing philosophy, if I could put it that way? Are there kind of other permanent changes to the way you think about companies that you want to work with that that changed as a result of that whole experience? Yeah. So we don't um, invest per se. You know, the companies that come out of flagship are companies born of our own science. So I think the biggest effect is not so much on internal operations at flagship as opposed to how our companies are perceived externally. We um, build companies based on what we call bio platforms, new modalities, that will either have no applications that work or multiple applications that work. mRNA is an example that um, is, is you know, widely used now, but we have many red blood cell therapies, anelloviruses as a means of at- attacking illness. And so the rise of bioplatforms, the, the rise of programmable medicines like mRNA, I think are the biggest outcomes of, of that and an area where that's occasioned greater investment interest from the outside for those who invest in our companies um, once we take in outside money. And I think has fueled a lot of interest in working in these companies from some who have come from traditional pharma. Right. It's certainly been a proof point externally, you know, for validating, uh, as you say, programmable medicines, I don't know if you call it designer medicines, kind of if they fall into that same rubric, but uh, certainly um, showed showed the world the power of of the platform approach. Yeah, and I think programmable is a bit different. Designer meaning this is a medicine designed specifically for you as an individual based on a particular condition or disease you're facing or your genetic makeup, whereas a programmable medicine is you see this spike target, this is what we need to design something to go in and go after it exactly this. And then you can change that cassette, if you will. Think of it as putting a new cassette in for a uh, RSV virus, a CMV virus, a flu virus. So that's what's meant by programmable. Got it. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. All right, Christine, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. So nice to speak to you too. Thanks for having me on.